Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm going to be doing a mailbag style episode and answer questions from Twitter. So let's get started. The first is from Team Tony 145 He asks, what's your process when you see a company that you might be interested in and how long do you take to research it before you can write articles? Well, I have a lot of companies that I think are likely very good and I haven't actually done the work on. I know anecdotally, many are great businesses, but I have to do a deep dive and do the work myself. This Substack is basically me working through that list. There are a lot of companies that I have to write up that I have on kind of a backlog. Over the next year, I mean, here's some of them I, I need to do a deeper dive on. Moody's, Dollar General, McDonald's, Lowe's, Johnson & Johnson, BlackRock, Equifax, Visa, MasterCard, ADP, Norfolk Southern, Colgate, Clorox, Pepsi, Altria, Merck, Coca-Cola, Dollarama, Walmart, MSCI, Northrop Grumman. So there's tons of companies I know are probably good and I just need to take a look at them. I believe these are all great businesses, but I haven't had the chance to actually do the work on them and find that out. Sometimes I will do a deep dive on a company and I'll find out it's not really as great as advertised. That's a key purpose of the Substack is to figure that out. Oftentimes I find that they are great companies. So I have already in my head a massive list of companies that I need to do deeper dives into. I do all the research and try to understand the company for about four to five days. Step number one is going on to quickfs.net and taking a look at about 20 years worth of financial data and see what story that tells. That's usually a great starting point because 20 years of financial data will really tell you whether or not this is a good business. And then at that point, the question is to find out more of the qualitative concerns of how that's happening, how that story that's being told in the financial statements um, actually translates into a real world business. So then I go through and I read K's and Q's over at sec.gov. Additionally, I'll read older 10Ks. I try to read at least three years worth of 10Ks to understand how the business has evolved over that period of time. I'll then go through the internet and try to see if there's any recent news about the company. I'll also go on some walks and listen to recent earnings calls on the earnings call app. That usually gives you some perspective to listen to management, discuss the current business environment. Then I'll send about two days putting all my notes and thoughts together into the article with things that are actually important. And I try to get to the heart of what makes it a good business. With the articles, I'm really not trying to inundate the reader with minutia that isn't important. I want to hone in on the key points, high level, how the business operates, whether or not that's a good business, and then get at the moat and growth prospects. It's often hard to condense that into two to 3,000 words, but I think it's important to cut through the noise and get to the key points. Writing in this style has really helped my investment process. By the end of the week, I have a solid handle on the business. My goal is to have done the work on a lot of different businesses when there is a market panic and stocks are cheap. When there's one of those market panics, I don't want to have to scramble through a list of 20 cheap names when things are attractive. I'll already know what I want to own and I'll already have done the work. 
at that point, it's just a matter of quickly seeing if the key drivers of the business are still intact and if the moat is still intact. And then the buying decision is relatively easy. So that's really what this Substack is all about. Generally, it takes about a week to put one of these articles together. And the next question is from Blue Summers Financial. Your small cap value ETF of choice is VBR. Which weighted on market cap is larger, 5.8 billion than other small cap value funds such as IJS, AVUV, DFSV? Did you select VBR because it has less volatility than other small cap value funds? Another reason, well, I selected VBR because of the low expense ratio. Another good alternative is VIOV or SLYV, which tracks the S&P 600 value index. VIOV now has the same expense ratio as VBR. SLYV is a bit higher at 0.15%. The results of the mutual fund version of VBR also went back very far. So that helped me really evaluate whether or not Vanguard's methodology is sound. And I saw it did a good job at tracking the small cap value factor, even though the our caps are a little bit higher. The mutual fund version of VBR is VISVX. That fund beat the S&P 500 since inception and has closely tracked the value factor. I'll link to that portfolio visualizer analysis in the show notes, and you can see how that worked out. But basically, that did 9.03% against the S&P 500 return of 6.99%. So there you have a real-world small-cap value fund with, with history going back 20 years, and it also has a very low expense ratio. I also noticed when I plugged that fund into Portfolio Visualizer, the results were very similar to SLYV, which is a more pure small cap value fund. But when you actually look at the results in Portfolio Visualizer, they're almost identical. So I decided I might as well go with the cheaper fund. In terms of diversifying among funds, I have started doing that a little bit, but I don't think it's uh, entirely necessary. But I do own a few different small cap value funds. SLYV is one of them. VIOV is another one. And I think the Avantis funds are also pretty interesting. The next question is from AP Capital. Why do you tend to focus on large cap stocks over small micro cap, given that there are greater mispriced opportunities there? Well, I think that the businesses in the large cap and mid cap segments of the market are better. The moats are more secure and the businesses are more predictable. So when I'm going and I'm trying to buy an individual stock in a 12 stock portfolio, I want to know that I'm investing in a great business. While I agree that there are probably larger margins of safety in the small and microcap universe. If I'm going to hold a stock through thick and thin for five years, I need to know that it's a great business. And it just happens to be that most of the great businesses are in the large and mid-cap space. I used to think that you had to go small and micro to find good investments, but I no longer think that's the case. I think there are plenty of examples that I've profiled on this blog of very large companies that have gone on to do extremely well. I often think value is hiding in plain sight. I've written up plenty of stocks on this blog where they're very big, well-known companies that you could have bought 20 years ago when they were still big and well-known and they've done just fine for investors. So I think that there's still opportunities to make money in that space. I've also had some bad experiences with small and micro caps. Oftentimes you'll see something that looks extremely cheap. You'll do the work and oftentimes it's an illusion. They're not really the great margin of safety that you thought they'd be. That's anecdotal, but I think it ties into the quality of the businesses that generally occupy that space. I also found when I was investing in smaller cap stocks that when I built a large portfolio of these, that it pretty much tracked the small cap value index, which I own 
in my asset allocation anyway. So rather than get into the nitty gritty of all of them, I decided with my asset allocation slice of my net worth that I would focus on small cap value ETFs. But then when I'm actually picking stocks and evaluating businesses, I would stick to better businesses with moats and they tend to be more in the large and mid cap space. Another thing I'd add is everyone who goes into small and micro caps thinks they're going to be Warren Buffett in the 1950s when he was flipping micro cap cigar butts. But the reality, in my experience, is a lot different. You often find extremely bad businesses, and usually the predictions of how it's a bad business, often the predictions of how it is a bad business often turns out to be accurate. Usually you're not smarter than the market, and usually these businesses are exactly as advertised. I'd rather go with bigger businesses that have established moats that I can hold for longer periods of time. If you're in one of those very cyclical microcap situations, you kind of have to watch the stock like a hawk. I'd rather have something where I can buy it with a reasonable margin of safety. I know that the moat will likely be secure for at least five years, and I can hold on to it for that period of time. I don't think you have to dig into the dumpster to do well in the market. With that said, small, micro, dumpster diving, these are all valid strategies, but I wasn't able to get them to work. And I think it's probably you'd get similar results if you simply bought a small cap value ETF. The next one is from Pedro Casto. I'm 19. How can I set up a good future for myself, financially speaking? What piece of advice would you give me if I was your son? So that's a big question, but I will start by telling you what to avoid. I'd say, number one, you want to stay away from drugs and alcohol. All of your friends will often be experimenting with drugs and alcohol all the time, and most of them are going to regret it later in life. I'd say if you're hanging out with your friends, drink a single beer and avoid getting drunk. I'd say practically everyone your age is experimenting with substances frequently. And uh, that's like kind of going through life in your career with half of your brain turned off. And if you can avoid that, you'll run circles around everyone. Next, I'd say you want to stay away from debt like it's the plague. It might be tempting to get into credit card debt, but that can quickly spiral out of control. No one gets a credit card with the intention of going into debt, but that's often how it evolves. Uh, usually the attitude starts off with, I'll pay it off next week. Next week comes along, you don't. So just stay away from it. If you don't have the cash, don't go into debt for it. I think student loans as a form of debt are fine in moderation, but you want a clear plan to paying that off. If you can cash flow college, that's the ideal way to do it. Hopefully you can get some scholarships to assist with that. But ideally you want to be able to graduate from college and have zero debt and start life off with a clean slate. I'd say the next big thing you need to set yourself up for is earning a high income. So you can read all the investing books you want, but it's not worth much if you don't actually have cash coming in the door that you can deploy. I'd say that how to invest and the nitty gritty of investing isn't really important at your age. What you want to do is set yourself up for a good career. To set yourself up for a good career, I wouldn't start by asking what your passion is. That's what a lot of people will tell you. I'd start with asking yourself what you're actually good at and then pursue a career in that. The bottom line is that you want a practical plan to earn good money right out of college and be able to get out of debt as quickly as possible or avoid it altogether. I'd also pursue financial independence early. Pursue it with a vengeance. Even if you don't want to retire early, you want to be in a situation where by the time you're in your 40s, the world is your oyster. It's completely possible to be financially independent by the time you're 40, but you have to start young, and most people don't. The greatest 
person of all time to read on this front is Mr. Money Mustache. He has a great blog. I'll link to it in the show notes. And uh, I'll also link to an article where he broke down the math behind uh, early retirement. Now, I'm not arguing you want to retire early, but I think you definitely want to think about being financially independent as early as possible. Give yourself as many options. If you do get into active investing, another recommendation I have is to track those investments in a blog or a private journal. You'll get a lot better at it if you regularly write this stuff down. You can then revisit it later on and investigate what you got right and what you got wrong. So I hope that helps you. Next question is from P Moneymaker. Considering a long-term value perspective and 2022 being a significant down year, what is your opinion on the remainder of 2023 for value opportunities by sector or company? So I think the best prospects are in the most beaten up sector last year, which is the tech sector. So there was a lot of garbage that got propped up in 2020 and 2021. The market flushed all that out in 2022, as you can see from the performance of a fund like ARC. But with that garbage, I think a lot of quality businesses were also flushed out. So the stocks I'm most excited about were the tech names that I picked up last year, Taiwan Semiconductor, Google, Meta, PayPal. I picked up all of these at pretty decent valuations, and I think they're solid long-term enterprises. And generally speaking, I think that's a good way to approach the market is to think about what sector has recently been beaten up the most and then scavenging that for opportunities because oftentimes really good businesses got flushed out in whatever panic or, or market moment was happening at that time. The next question is from Charles Watson. Anything you look at specifically to determine whether a stock is over or undervalued? Also, how do you get your gold exposure? Physical ETF miners. So 99% of my gold exposure in my asset allocation is held via ETFs. I use SGOL and GLDM. The fees are low and both ETFs are very liquid. And I think they track the gold price very well. I stay away from the miners because they're too volatile. Gold itself is volatile enough, but then gold miners are even more volatile than that. It's absolutely bonkers. They can easily have an 80% drawdown overnight if the gold price goes down, or if the gold price is doing well, they can be up 200%. My attitude is just avoid it. I do own a little bit of bullion. I use gold Britannias. I think they're nice to look at, but they're definitely not an economical way to get gold exposure. When you buy actual gold, you're paying at least 5% over the spot price. You also have to pay for shipping and handling. Then you're going to lose some money when you liquidate them. So it's physical gold is not the ideal way to hold gold. As for the next question, I think determining whether a stock is overvalued or undervalued is a little bit more art than science. So the first thing I do is look at the 20-year multiple history and try to make sure that I'm purchasing that near a trough. And then as a hard rule, I want to see a good free cash yield that at least exceeds the 10-year treasury. But it's obviously different for every stock, and I think you have to look at them individually to know for sure if it's actually at a decent valuation. The next question is from Compact Perspectives. What is your current favorite stock pick and why? Well, currently my favorite stock pick is Taiwan Semiconductor. So Taiwan Semiconductor is leagues ahead of the competition in semiconductor manufacturing. It's going to take competitors years to catch up if they ever do. Meanwhile, Taiwan Semiconductor is making inroads with all the major chip designers and users. Big customer of theirs is Apple. They're at the forefront of technology in a rapidly growing sector. The thesis is pretty simple. I think we're going to need more chips in the future than we have right now. And I think that Taiwan Semiconductor will benefit from that long-term trend. This is a company I never imagined I would be able to get an attractive price, but hey, you know, Mr. Market is crazy, which is what I'm trying to dig for here. The concerns weighing on the stock 
I think are pretty minor. First, market's concerned about a recession and a decline in chip demand. No one seems to be willing to look beyond the recession. So say we get a recession in six months or a year from now. Well, what happens after that? No one seems to care about that at the moment. I think that if I hold this asset through it and I hold it for five to 10 years, it's going to grow and it's still going to be a fine business. And I didn't overpay or, or pay an insane multiple. And all of, and that thesis also assumes, or the thesis of the market also assumes that we're actually going to have a recession. The evidence points that, but who really knows? I'll assume a recession is going to happen and then be pleasantly surprised if we avoid it, which is also possible. And then the next concern weighing on the stock is China invading Taiwan. So I find it fascinating that no one was worried about China invading Taiwan when the stock was selling at 40 times uh, EV EBIT in 2021. So I think that's like saying that you're not going to buy stocks because you think there will be a nuclear war tomorrow. It's obviously a preposterous way to invest because if there is a nuclear or your portfolio won't really matter anyway. So if China invades Taiwan, we're going to have World War III. And then I'm willing to take the other side of the bet and hope that doesn't happen because if it does, well, I'm probably going to be dead anyway. The next question's from Drug Money. I looked at his profile and he is not actually a drug dealer. He's a pharmacist. So it's a really funny handle. He asked me, how would you fix the rise of Skywalker? So I'm not sure if anyone could fix The Rise of Skywalker because The Last Jedi really put the sequel trilogy into a deep hole. But here's some ideas I have. The first thing I do is not have Emperor Palpatine in the movie. I really dislike the idea of bringing him back from the dead. The first trilogy ended his story in a very satisfying fashion, and I don't think it was a good idea to bring him back. I would lean into the sequence where Kylo Ren was searching for the Sith Wayfinder at the beginning of the movie. It was very cool, and they just rushed through it in two minutes. It was probably the most interesting aspect of that whole story. That could be half of a movie and would be extremely interesting. And then I'd say instead of having the Sith Wayfinder lead to Palpatine, I'd have it lead to the former Sith homeworld of Korriban and have Kylo Ren discover some ancient Sith technology. I would absolutely not have the giant fleet of Star Destroyers built in secret. The idea that Palpatine could build a fleet of Star Destroyers equipped with Death Star lasers and then staff all of these ships with no one in the galaxy knowing about it kind of sounds like a plot written by an 11-year-old. And then even more ridiculous was that ending battle where there were millions of ships and lasers flying around and you couldn't keep track of anything. And then they had people running around on the tops of ships it was just completely ridiculous, and I'd get rid of all that. I'd also get rid of the idea of Ray being Palpatine's child in the first movie. They clearly set it up like she was Luke's daughter. She had the attraction to Anakin's lightsaber, for instance, implying that she was actually a Skywalker. And I think the only reason they made her Palpatine's child was to subvert expectations for the sake of subverting expectations. They also had a strong desire to redeem Kylo Ren and make it like the redemption of Darth Vader and Return of the Jedi. I think that was probably unnecessary. They should have actually set him up as being the big villain who completely lets the dark side take control of him and have him as the chief villain of the movie without trying to mirror Return of the Jedi. I don't think that was necessary. So that's all the questions for today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have a question or topic you'd like me to discuss, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter with more questions, or you can respond to this post in Substack. As always, if you'd like to read my Substack, it's securityanalysis.org. Thank you for your time and have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. 
Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.